Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a podcast with literally zero preparation, almost literally zero preparation. I guess we talk for an average of, what would you say, three minutes before we uh, start podcasting, Charles? Yeah, I sit and work out what it is that I've written about or thought about in the last three days, and you do the same, and then we talk about it. Hmm. I didn't actually do that today. I can't even remember what my Tuesday was about this week. I've had a little bit of a busy week. What did I write about? I haven't Do you remember? It well, it's Wednesday and you haven't read the Tuesday? What's wrong with you? Many things What's wrong, wrong with, with you, me, is, Kevin. It, yeah, make a list, right? What's wrong with you is that you need a vacation, which I understand you're about to take one. I do need a vacation, and thankfully I'm about to get one of sorts. And you are doing a, uh, a staycation, is that right, as they call them? You're staying at home and just heading to the beach? Pretty much. My English family... Nice thing about living in a place where other people like to go on vacation. Exactly. My English family's coming over. My joke, given the heat wave in Europe, is they're coming to Florida to cool down. Right, yeah. Gosh, it's been brutal. And of course, they don't have air conditioning. But, uh, no. What year was it? Was it 2007 when 30,000 people died in Europe from heat? I looked this up yesterday because we talked about this on the editor's podcast, and the new peer-reviewed figures are 72,000. And what year was that? It was 2003. 14,800 of them were in France. Guess where I was for the entire summer of 2003, Kevin? Possibly France. The south of France, that's right. And I was explaining to Rich that the difference between being in a place that is hot with air conditioning and being in a place that is hot without air conditioning is profound. And I know this from personal experience, not just because it was almost impossible to sleep till I could eventually find a rotating fan, but because every morning I would walk down to the little town we were staying in and I would buy two newspapers from the rack, one French, one British. The British newspapers are all there in France every morning. And I would read about the extraordinary number of people especially in france who had died from the heat wave it's just a different world yeah well let me start by acknowledging the tragedy of you having to spend your summers in the south of france as a child oh i love the south of france we used to drive there it is nice it's a beautiful place to drive i've driven through it uh myself not too long ago in fact and um it is uh quite something so 70,000 people died uh, that time around. Are we expecting uh, similar numbers this time? I don't think so. No. Why? Because they have more air conditioning, better preparation? Well, for a start, I don't think the heat wave is likely to last as long. I mean, one of the problems last time was it lasted six to eight weeks. I just assumed it was going to be worse this time because weather and such being worse. No, I don't believe so. Okay. It wiped about half a percentage of I've been conditioned by the climate people, Charles, to expect worse weather. <laughs> now, it seems to have calmed down in England anyway. No, that's good. Yeah, I've got you beat on that front, by the way. I lived in India with no air conditioning. And uh, Delhi gets quite hot in the summers, as you may have heard. I don't know how you did it. I, I really struggled for a week. Now, I mean, I was under no threat. So relative to everyone else, I was fine. But I had to sleep on top of the bed. I had to leave the window open. I, I was sort of pour water on the sheets and uh eventually i went and found this this fan that did sort of work but it's not i did have a ceiling fan in my apartment so that was helpful i'm always surprised by how effective ceiling fans are yeah no they're they're 
wondrous inventions. I like them in general just because I think the noise and stuff um, helps me to sleep better. I love white noise. Yeah. Anyhow, my parents are coming over. So are uh, my brother-in-law, my sister, and their kids, and my uncle, and so on. And well, big uh, gang. Big gang. They're going to stay here and uh, go swimming and hopefully enjoy some sunshine. By the looks of it, also enjoy some thunderstorms. We're about to get mm. one in about two minutes. And uh, then at the end, we're all going to Disney. <laughs> Fun. How many times have you been to... Uh... It's Disneyland, Disney World. I forget which Disney one. Disney World. Is. How many Disney times World have I been Florida. to Disney World? Yes. 30? <laughs> so you don't really actually have a count. No, but of course, if you live in Florida, then they extend ridiculous discounts to you. Oh, yeah. So it's just like an, an amenity of living in the state. Right. And especially during and post COVID. Because people weren't traveling from Nebraska to come to Disney World, then they needed people in Florida to drive down. Mm-hmm. So we have season passes that, you know, it's it's so you go out, but you know, it's like going out for dinner. It's just it's just it's so cheap to go there, and they give you enormous discounts off hotels and merchandise and so on. So just for the record, when I say I've been there thirty times, I haven't been there thirty times that. <laughs> At full price, that would be. I, I would spend my money on nothing else. I'd be homeless. Yeah, that would be um, be quite something. Yeah, as you know, I used to live in Las Vegas, and um, Vegas is another place like that where you get a lot of visitors if you live there, including me. Yeah, that's right. You did come to see me there one time. We had a, a fun Twice. time, as I recall. <clears throat> but yeah, if you live in um, if you live in Lubbock, Texas, you know you don't get a lot of people like just swinging by. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I still, still haven't been to Lubbock, Texas, things. Kevin. Well, there are many things there you must see. Actually, you would like it. You can go visit the uh, Buddy Holly Museum because I know you're interested in rock and roll and that period in time. And it's actually pretty interesting. Do you so know Buddy the, Holly's uh, real first name? Uh, man, I should. I stole his senior yearbook. Um, no, what was his actual first name? Charles. Was it Charles? That's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I don't know why. And he had a funny middle name too. Like, can't remember what it was. Um. Anyway, I'm having you a bit of You stole his senior yearbook. Yeah. So you know, we went to the same high school, right? And uh, he was there some years before me. And uh, Buddy Holly related things, as you can imagine, are highly uh, collected. And I did liberate actually more than one copy of the um, yearbook from his senior year and sold them when I was in college. Yes. Wow. I had no idea. His middle name was Hardin. Hardin, yeah. And he originally had an E in his surname. It was Holly. Right. But he clearly changed that. Yeah. So it is worth seeing. Let's see the other fun stuff you would do if you were there. The Ranching and Heritage uh, Museum is pretty interesting. You can go check that out. And then you'll be done, pretty much. <laughs> you, can, you can go see the famous Kevin Williamson sites in uh, Lubbock, Texas. It does remind you, though, how many people there are in America. Because Lubbock, Texas has, what, 300,000 people in it? In the whole county? Yeah, about that. That's a lot yeah, of people, Kevin. 
Yeah, you figure it's about the size Rome was when Cicero was running around. Yeah. But it's not a major cultural fixture in the United States, and yet there's 300,000 people you? who live there. How dare you suggest that, Charles? Well, it's true of Jacksonville, too. There are a million people in Jacksonville. <laughs> no one ever talks about it. Whenever anyone asks me where I live in Florida, they tick off their guesses. Miami? Nope. Tampa? Nope. Palm Beach? Nope. Jackson, uh, uh, Tallahassee? No. Yeah, near Jacksonville. Oh, that. <laughs> It's, it's just there's a million people there, but just whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, there's we actually we should talk about that one of these days because, um, you know, sort of second tier cities and even suburbs, our country being so large, tend to have really big populations. You know, so Dallas has I don't know how many people, a few million people in Dallas, but then you start looking at the suburbs and cities around Dallas, like you know, Fort Worth is another million people. I think uh, Plano is a million people now, or something like that. I read the other day, it was a couple of months ago, actually, that there are something, there are three or four suburbs of Dallas or municipalities that aren't Dallas or Fort Worth in the DFW area that are larger than San Francisco. Exactly. Yeah. There and are no more really people in Jacksonville than in San Francisco. Yeah. Soon to be a lot more, I would imagine, because people from San Francisco are getting out of there as fast as they can. I, I, read, I read something, there was a... That 44% of people surveyed in California said they want to leave the state if they could. Mm, that is big. Do you know? That's a big number. I, I am obviously disappointed by what's happened to San Francisco. But one of the things that I liked the most about San Francisco was that it's an, a big, famous city, but there's only 700,000 people there. Because London has 7 million, and New York has, I think, 8 million now, and Paris has 7 million. And then you go to San Francisco, and it feels manageable. Yeah, as opposed to say Bombay, which no one really knows the population of anymore, but twenty well, Mexico City million probably. Yeah, you ever been to Mexico City? I have not. I have never. Interesting been to Mexico. place. You should go. Oh, really? Have right. you not gone to Mexico? Okay. Well, I guess you're still seeing your uh, new home country. Have you been to Indiana? Of course. What were you doing in Indiana? I went to the NRA convention in Indianapolis. Which I like as a city. I don't really know it that well. It's a second-tier, smallish city. And it's friendly and walkable. And the hotel I stayed in is really nice. Sort of like maybe Kansas City? Yeah, I like Kansas City, too. Yeah. And uh, the restaurants were good. I went to the steakhouse, Elmo's Steakhouse. I think it's the steakhouse that Ron Swanson is always... Visiting in Parks and Recreation. I see. Anyway, that was a good night. I enjoyed it. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of that show all the way through, but people always send me Ron Swanson clips. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. What is that actor's name? I forget. Um, that plays Ron Swanson. Nick um, Offerman. Nick Offerman, yeah. I ran into him several times in New York um, at the theater. Apparently he's a big theater guy. And you'd see him around uh, there a lot. Always seemed like a nice guy. People would want to talk to him and stuff, and he always seemed uh, receptive and uh, friendly. So I always admired that in a uh, very famous person like that. So there was some news out of Indiana uh, this week. The thing that it was Indiana, right, with the attempted mall shooting. That's and right, Greenwood. Who, Greenwood, Indiana, which I have no idea where that is. Is that an Indianapolis suburb or yes. is it uh, something else? So some guy is uh, at a cookie place with his uh, girlfriend is that right and a uh, guy goes in the bathroom and 
comes out with a gun and comes out guns blazing. And what I remember from the story was that the guy whose name looks like it should be pronounced Elijah or Elisha, but it's spelled kind of a weird way that makes you unsure of how to actually pronounce it because there's some extra consonants in there, it looks like. Um, but according to the account I read anyway, shot the guy from 30 yards. That's a pretty good shot with a handgun under, uh, you know, pressure. I think the whole thing is remarkable. Yeah. Obviously a horrible incident. Three people died. One was badly injured. Yet another young man who wanted to create a spectacle took two rifles and a handgun to a mall, went into the bathroom for an hour and two minutes. Seems to have tried to flush his cell phone down the toilet. Came out firing. Except this time, within 15 seconds of him firing, a 22-year-old Hoosier named Elisha, I think, Dickin, had shot him. From and they are a constitutional carry state. Yeah. And then advanced in on him while using his other hand to direct the shooter's would-be victims out of the way. Yeah. Now, what's remarkable about this is that this guy had no police training, had no military training. He didn't even have a concealed carry permit. He had started carrying after Indiana had abolished its permitting system in favor of permitless carry, or some people call constitutional carry. And in a sense, he he is a one-stop rebuttal of a lot of the arguments against concealed carry. We hear that people like him don't exist. Well, yes, it is overstated how many of those people there are and how often they intervene in mass shootings, but it does happen. It's happened 24 times, the FBI says. It's happened twice in the last six weeks. Yeah. What was the other one? In West Virginia. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're told that people who aren't police officers or soldiers can't possibly have the training or presence of mind to interfere. Well, he did. He did so astonishingly well. The police were full of praise, said he's tactically sound, calm, effective. Uh, And we're told that one can't possibly take on somebody who has an AR-15 with a handgun. Well, he did. The shooter had an AR-15. Elisha Dickin had a Glock 17 in 9mm. And he used it. And I think it's just worth our remembering that while there's no obvious solution to mass shootings, and I'm not going to pretend there is, and I'm also not going to pretend that they are unrelated to the number of guns in circulation in the United States, of course they are, that this helped at the margins and it pushed back against a lot of the snide talking points that you hear. Um, this guy deserves to be a household name. Not the shooter, but the hero deserves to be yeah. a household name. Uh, it, it also... Did the shooter kill anybody before they put him down? Three people. Three people, okay. And it would have been a lot more. And it's terrible that it was three people. But I was coming on to this. My question here is always as opposed to what? Sure. Now, I saw a lot of strange responses to this. Some people said, well, it wasn't good because three people died. Absolutely agree. But 
as opposed to what? Because it could have been 20. I saw, yeah, I saw some of the gun control group saying this is bad because it will encourage other people to carry. <laughs> what do you mean it was bad? <laughs> and then I saw well, the Brady campaign try to link it to the abolition of the permitting system in Indiana. And that is the craziest of all. Now, I know you and I have disagreed on the wisdom of constitutional carry, but clearly... The downside, as you see it, of constitutional carry, it's not that it enables criminals to murder people. It doesn't right. apply to rifles. But even if it did, the guy who committed this crime was not going to be dissuaded by the presence or lack thereof of a permitting system. The only change here affected the hero. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean that, that all of the objections to constitutional carry are wrong, but it does mean that when the Brady campaign puts out a statement saying, well, we can't help but notice that on July 1st, Indiana abolished its permitting system, and on you know, July 17th, there was a mass shooting, that is extraordinarily dishonest, uh, incomplete, <clears throat> lacking in context. And, and it's also worth saying, just for those of our listeners who don't know, that, again, whatever the, the pluses and minuses of constitutional carry, and I'm in favor, it doesn't change the eligibility requirements. It changes what you have to do as a potential carrier in that it prevents you from having to preemptively get a permit before you carry. But it doesn't allow people with felonies to carry, people who are mentally ill. To, all of the eligibility criteria is identical. It just changes whether or not there's a piece of paper in your wallet. Um, For so, instance, if you're, if you're an active user of illegal drugs... You might not be uh, permitted to carry, is that correct? <laughs> well, yes. Also, that's a crime under federal law. In theory. <laughs> yes. Should we talk about Hunter Biden? Well, I think we should, yeah. I think we should. I wrote about this on so Monday. Something, yeah, I liked your piece. Something you and I, uh, I know we are um, broken records on this subject, but it really is the case that we do very little, shockingly little, negligently little, um, culpably little to um, enforce the gun laws we have already on the books, some of which are pretty good ones. Uh, one of the laws that we do not enforce very much has to do with attempting to illegally purchase a gun if you are a prohibited person or successfully purchasing a gun if you are a prohibited person especially by lying on the ATF forms that you have to fill out when you buy a handgun. Now, as you know, there are lots of very specific questions. And one of them I always stop over. It's, have you renounced your U.S. citizenship? It says yes or no, and I'm always looking for the not yet. But um, one of the questions it asks you is, uh, are you a user of illegal drugs or are you a drug addict right i forget the exact phrasing of it but it is something along those lines and hunter biden is and was at the time when he bought a 38 revolver a few years ago lied about his drug use on the form which is a federal felony for which you can go to jail for a decade and occasionally people do but not that often and uh there's a there's a whole category of crimes called uh lie and try, where you go and 
if you're a felon and you fill out the form and say, no, I'm not, and I uh, hope that the background check system doesn't cut, catch up to you. Um, that's what Hunter Biden did on his drug use, and he was successful. But the thing about that is, um, obviously, the people who are successful aren't getting prosecuted because um, there's no flag to prosecute them because they, they snuck through the system. But the people who are unsuccessful, who get caught, normally don't get prosecuted either. And, uh, and they certainly normally don't end up doing any uh, prison time over it. So while our background check system is, as I understand it, um, pretty thorough, it doesn't miss a lot of people um, who are prohibited buyers. Um, well, let me qualify that. It doesn't miss a lot of people who are prohibited buyers when the prohibition is of the sort that produces a public record, like a felony conviction or a domestic violence uh, restraining order or something like that. But um, but there's not a whole lot of downside for uh, for trying if you are a prohibited person. Hey, listen to that sirens. It's the Mad Dogs and Englishmen uh, tradition. Texas edition. Yeah. Um, obviously, something's on fire. I hope it's not my house. Anyway, um, there's not really much of a, a disincentive to uh, lie and try, as they say. And this uh, falls into uh, a larger category of things that you and I have talked about a lot, which is the irrationality of the fact that almost all of our existing and proposed firearms laws are aimed at dealing with licensed firearms dealers, you know, retailers who have federal firearms licenses and the people who do business with them, who are, by definition, pretty much the most law-abiding group of people in the country. Because if you have a felony conviction, you can't um, either uh, legally purchase a gun and you certainly can't get a license to sell them, typically, if you've got a felony uh, conv conviction. Whereas we've got all sorts of uh, gun crime that goes unpoliced, unregulated, unpunished. I'm trying to remember the um, exact stats from the column I wrote a few weeks ago. But I want to say in Philadelphia, it is currently something north of 60% of gun crime cases are dismissed without trial. And that is up sharply from about 30% uh, in 2016, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly. And the thing that really stood out about that one to me was that the DA's office is bragging about it. Like, this is how enlightened we are, that we're not putting people in jail uh, for these crimes. And I think that, of course, is exactly the wrong way to go about it, to try to put more regulations on the law-abiding people while doing nothing to prosecute the people who are actually out there committing real felonies, including violent felonies. Um, it's no surprise that this approach is not working. But Hunter Biden is kind of a special case where I guess there's a video of him and he's, what, running around in his underwear, smoking crack, waving a gun around. Is that right? That seems to be the case. So my that's objection... not like your typical Tuesday, right? No. Well, my objection here is to the caprice with yes. which the laws we have are enforced. And caprice is the word I used in my piece. And I got a few emails from people saying, you're saying corruption. I didn't say corruption. I wrote caprice. And I think caprice is the right word and corruption is not. I think that gun control activists have not grasped the extent to which Americans suspect correctly, I think, that we don't enforce our existing gun laws properly and that we won't enforce any new ones properly either. And that this, among other things, informs their general reluctance to 
entertain stricter laws than we already have. It is, of course, true that the two alleged crimes that Hunter Biden committed are usually not enforced. But whatever the reason for their not being enforced doesn't let the federal government off the hook in Hunter Biden's case. So the first possibility as to why Hunter Biden has not been at least investigated is that there is no evidence. Now, in most cases, that is why people who lie on Form 473, as he seems to have, aren't investigated. Because if you say you're not using illegal drugs, but you actually are, there's no way the federal government will ever know. Uh, Likewise, he seems to have committed a federal crime uh, being in possession of a firearm while under the influence. But again, in most cases, uh, how on earth would the federal government ever know? I mean, if I take all sorts of mind-altering substances in my house and then I pick up a gun, well, we live in a free country. There aren't cameras everywhere in my house. But in Hunter Biden's case, there is evidence that he's done both. He wrote in his book that he was taking drugs every 15 minutes, his words, not mine. At the exact period, he bought the gun. And uh, there is photographic evidence of him holding that firearm that he bought while smoking crack. It seems he's doing both those things. And the federal government has done nothing. Now, uh, that means that there really is only one other option as to why nothing has been done here and nothing is done in other cases, and that is indifference. Perhaps the government has better things to do. The problem with that, as I pointed out, is that the federal government is still prosecuting gun cases. And I pointed as a contrast to a different law being enforced. But I think it matters that it's a different law, because I think if you were to prioritize your time, you would be more interested in the Hunter Bidens of the world than you would in um, the gentleman that I wrote about. What was that case for the, uh, for the listeners? So there's, there's a guy in Florida who bought a pistol and then attached a buttstock to it, which is illegal under the National Firearms Act of 1934, which is full of all of these arbitrary rules. And one because of those it rules, is just a nefarious short-barreled rifle. Exactly. So the barrel was under 16 inches, and if you put a buttstock on the pistol, it becomes a rifle. And if the rifle is uh, has a barrel under 16 inches, it's a short-barreled rifle. And if it's a short-barreled rifle, then it's classified under the National Firearms Act, and you have to register it with the federal government and pay a $200 Do you tax. know what the, um, what the rationale is for that, why no. short-barreled rifles are supposed to be especially dangerous? I more concealable, perhaps. Concealability thing? Um, some of our, our, our listeners won't know this. Um, I know you and I go into the weeds with uh, gun stuff sometimes. But in terms of the power of a firearm, the shorter you make the barrel, the less powerful the rifle typically is going to be. Right. So the difference between a 16-inch barrel and a 15-inch barrel is almost nothing. And the point I'm making here, and the point I made in this piece, is not that this guy was innocent. 
he wasn't. If you look at the transcripts, he clearly did this. In fact, he knew that he was breaking the law because he said so. There's no mens rea case here. He told um, an informant uh, that he knew he was breaking the law. But did you just hear what I just said? Yes. <laughs> he told, so here is a guy in Florida who has no criminal record. He has uh, no arrest record. He has no mental health problems. Uh, he used to be a 911 dispatcher. Um, he used to uh, be a pilot. Uh, he is not regarded by anyone and has never been regarded by anyone as a threat. And in order to prosecute what is a paperwork violation, because the gun is not more or less deadly, if you put a buttstock on it, it doesn't make him more or less murderous. It doesn't make him more or less likely to hurt himself or anyone else. And to reemphasize, these guns are not actually prohibited. They're no. just subject to a higher degree of regulation and a special tax. Right. Uh, in order to prosecute him for this and give him 21 months in prison, which is what he got, federal prison, um, the federal government uh, embarked on a nearly year-long investigation and used an informant who befriended him, surreptitiously took photographs and video of him and texted him to, in effect, extract a confession. Now, he gave that confession. He broke the law. He did it. He's guilty. That, that is beyond doubt. But here's my question. Why, if you have limited resources, do you prosecute one and not the other? Because the crime uh, that this guy, uh, Mayer, his name is, committed, is what you would regard as a uh, malum prohibitum law. That is, it's illegal because it's illegal. You're not allowed under 16 inches, it's 15 inches, therefore it's arbitrarily classified as a short bout fine. That's the law, that's fine. But it is wrong because it's wrong. There's nothing intrinsic in the universe, there's nothing morally intuitive about the difference between a 16 and 15 inch barrel. It's just an arbitrary line that was drawn in the 1930s, before any of the weapons here ever existed, and uh, he broke it, fine. But the thing is with Hunter Biden is that while I don't think he's the number one priority in the country, what he did is actually obviously a moral problem. I mean, I, I think that there is, if I had my way, I would get rid of the National Firearms Act tomorrow. I think it's just arbitrary and silly and partly unconstitutional. But I would not get rid of the laws that pr prohibit drug addicts from buying guns. And I would not get rid of the laws that make it a crime to take mind-altering substances and then brandish firearms. I think everyone can see that even if it's difficult for the government on a daily basis to enforce these laws, that they are there for a reason, that they are malum in se, that they are intrinsically good laws that are designed to superintend immoral and dangerous behavior that has real world externalities. The, the distinction that I drew in my piece is the difference between illegally modifying something on your car. Let's say that the, you know, there is a law about how wide your wheels can be and you exceeded and, and driving drunk. Yes, both yeah. can be laws. Yes, if we have laws, they should either be enforced or repealed. But if the government spent all of its time setting up sting operations to measure people's wheels and ignore drunk drivers, I think people would say there's a problem there. And you know, if you look at this case... They will measure your window tint. Right, that's, that's probably a better example. Uh, if you look at this case, it, it's a great illustration of why when figures such as Joe Biden, who, by the way, 
wrote a lot of the laws that, that yes, are in question. Under which his son should be imprisoned. Yeah. Uh, when Joe Biden stands there and does his exasperated decent man routine and says, for God's sake, let's do something, and says, you know, goodness me, folks, and all of that, why it leaves most people unmoved, not just because his own son seems to be skirting it and getting away with it, although that really is not helping him, but because we all know of cases like this where the government seems to obsess over paperwork violations at, you know, licensed dealers, but is entirely apathetic toward people who are very obviously breaking the law. Yeah, there's an interesting kind of theory at work there. To use a very Charlie Cook word, uh, superintend, you know, the um, assumption of most gun control proposals is that if we will more tightly superintend the people who are doing business at gun shops, then we will be able to keep criminals from getting guns. And that, of course, does not um, hold up very much in the real world. But if you look at situations in American life in which there is a very high level of superintendence of individuals, uh, for instance, people on parole and probation, you will see that this level of interference and surveillance in people's lives doesn't actually produce the results we want either. I know that in Baltimore, one out of three murders is committed by someone who's already on parole or probation. Uh, the figure is roughly the same in Philadelphia. It's probably the same in a lot of other cities. So even that level of uh, scrutiny uh, when what's involved in the parole and probation systems doesn't achieve the kind of uh, preventative effect in crime that people would like. So much less of adding another layer of this or that box to check off for people who have clean records, um, buying firearms from sporting goods stores with federal licenses. It's it's really it, it's actually really yeah, what's the word? Irritating, maddening, vexing, vexatious. All of those things. It's all of those things because you know, it's simply not the case that Second Amendment uh, advocates, such as myself, oppose all gun control laws. We don't. Of course not. There are lots of gun control laws that I support. I very much like that felons are prohibited from buying firearms. And children. And, children. and I support some time and place restrictions. And I support rules against brandishing. And I support... Uh, rules against taking drugs or being drunk when you have a gun uh, on your person and so on. Um, and you look at this and you think, all right, well, this guy in Florida, he broke the law. He did. Uh, but that's not actually a, the problem. I mean, I've just never heard of a case that really intersects with... I mean, the other part of this, by the way, I should mention is he had already... Uh, obeyed the law that he broke twice. He had two suppressors, and he'd registered them and paid the 200. So, I mean, he knew the law, but also, this is a guy who had a concealed carry permit from Florida and had complied with the National Firearms Act twice and been through the extensive and enhanced federal background check to do so. So the federal government already knew that he had nothing in his record that rendered him a threat. Whereas, you know, Hunter Biden was dishonorably discharged from the military. Uh, he's repeatedly uh, been caught taking illegal drugs, drugs that 
and I re- this is where I really do think it matters that Joe Biden is his dad, drugs that a lot of other people have gone to prison for 10 years for, for possessing. decades. Especially when a firearm's involved. You know, people often miscast the crime bill and they make it seem as if the federal prison system is just full of people who were caught in possession of marijuana. That's not true. But what the crime bill did do in 94 is it added mandatory minimums at the federal level for people who were caught with uh, drugs on the controlled substances list and a firearm. In fact, there's a famous case, Supreme Court case, where Scalia dissented because the federal government had enforced this law so uh, vehemently that someone who had exchanged drugs for a firearm was prosecuted for using a firearm in the commission of a drug deal. And Scalia <laughs> said, well, that's not what the law means. That's, that's, a, that's not what the text of the law says. He was, but th- the point is that th- this, this nexus between guns and drugs was Joe Biden's obsession in the early 1990s. And yet his son uh, is skating. And <laughs> I just think it makes it very, very difficult to, to convince people that you're serious about uh, dealing with the problems that we do have in America with, with people using guns to commit crimes. Yeah. Hunter Biden, man. Um, I feel sympathy for the guy in lots of ways. I mean, obviously he's a contemptible figure in lots of ways too, but this guy's 52 years old. You know, he's, uh, he has got a screwed up life and it's going to get worse. It looks like he seems to be on a downward trajectory. It's terrible, but you know, there are a lot of people in the United States who have the same problems that he does. And, uh, there's a number of them have ended up in and out of jail and with all sorts of uh, life-challenging records that he seems to have avoided. Well, I think he's really relied heavily on his expertise in the Ukrainian energy industry. <laughs> has really been what he's saved the his indispensable bacon man. in life. He is the irreplaceable <laughs> voice in that conversation. And right now, that's especially um, that's especially relevant. You know, I don't know if you saw the news this morning, but um, EU is um, instructing member states to begin uh, preparing preparing for uh, gas rationing. Oh, that'll go down well. Yeah, they are going to be cut off. Um, I mean, natural gas, not gasoline. And uh, they are in a hard place. We should maybe next time we talk. Um, talk a little about the energy industry and um, nuclear and some of the other stuff that I'm looking at right now that I'm not really ready to uh, have a full-on podcast conversation about, but uh, not to just you know, suddenly change course, but this is very much on my mind. You know, so I live in Texas where we have some concerns about the robustness of our power grid, and it famously collapsed during a uh, very bad winter storm a couple of years ago. And it is sort of straining at its capacity right now because it is it's 108 yesterday in the uh, Dallas area. It was hotter than that, some other parts of the state. And this is expected to keep up for a while. And air conditioning, of course, is a great big suck on uh, power. 
So the, you know, the hotter it gets, the harder the ACs have to work and the more they're on, et cetera, et cetera. And there is some real reason to believe that the system is not ready to keep up with this. And this seems to me like such an idiotically self-inflicted problem in that we know how to build power stations. We're pretty good at it. And uh, as you know, I'm a big advocate of nuclear power. I think we ought to be using more of it. But, you know, just a few, a handful of additional uh, plants running on nuclear power in Texas would do zero to contribute to emissions, which a lot of our progressive friends care a great deal about, but also provide a very, very reliable and once it's up and running, very, very affordable baseline load of electricity. Um, this is how the French do things. They generate uh, 75% of their power via nuclear. Some other countries have uh, pretty good records with it as well. The United States, for whatever reason, just can't seem to get its act together uh, on this one. Even in places like Texas, where you would think that um, we would be more open to that sort of thing. Although I suppose that as a regulatory issue, that's more federal question than a state question. Where are you on that stuff? You, uh, you, uh, you a fan of the nuclear power? Area? I think that it is a great shame that we haven't done this and we don't seem to be gearing up to do it. Despite the many challenges we face and it being the obvious solution, I would point to France, which did this in the 1950s. Yep. Has never had. I mean, they accident. could run. They could run air conditioners there if they wanted to when it was hot. They just don't have air conditioning. I believe I'm right in saying, and you'll correct me if this is a myth, that France is a net exporter of energy, and sends. I don't even think to that's England. always true, but I think it is often true. Yeah, so they are interconnected with power grids of the surrounding countries, and they do sell their spare electricity. I just don't understand the supposed strong case against nuclear power if we are facing a climate crisis which i don't believe but i'm not dogmatic about uh, if we are going to want to maintain our standard of living without burning fossil fuels at this rate if we want to be able to predict uh, the amount of energy that we will have in the future, surely nuclear is the answer. I mean, France has not had any accidents, and it's been doing this for 60 years. Uh, the one accident that we had in the United States was actually a success story. I know it's been spun right, everything the other worked way. worked at Three Mile Island, yeah. Yeah, so when people want to... Uh, smear nuclear power stations they point to chernobyl well okay i can yeah. point to a lot of things in <laughs> uh, the in the soviet union was not great yeah right that's like saying well you know supermarkets aren't very good look at what they were like in the soviet union well i don't care what they were like in the soviet union i care what they're look like what, in florida look what their ukrainian farm policy was back <laughs> right it, I, I just see this as, as I, I understand there are political problems in it especially uh, with it, especially in a federal uh, constitutional setup where you can't do what, what Charles de Gaulle did, which was essentially say, I'll be a dictator for a little bit. Here's where we're putting the nuclear power stations. Please shut up. 
No one ever talks about that when they're having their China dictator, uh, China no. for a day fantasies. No. Yeah, I had a point I was about to make, but now I've uh, forgotten what it was. Oh, yeah, it's that um, the dumb thing about this is I, I really think it's just a Cold War hangover. You know, the uh, left was very anti-nuclear on uh, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, um, because they associated nuclear energy with nuclear weapons. Um, so nuclear energy ended up being for them kind of morally and culturally an outgrowth of militarism and uh, foreign policy ideas they didn't like very much. And I think it was all tied up with this Cold War era uh, pacifistic kind of thinking. And that is no longer really very relevant to our current political situation. And it certainly isn't something that should be preventing you from acting on this if you really believe, as so many of our progressive friends do, that we are facing an existential crisis um, involving carbon emissions and that this should be the number one issue on everyone's agenda for the foreseeable future. You know, if you um, if you started building nuclear power plants and then replacing the conventional plants with nuclear as they went out of service, you would essentially zero out the carbon footprint of electricity generation in about, what, 30 years and probably cut it in half um, within a matter of 10 or 15 years, something like that. Um, I'm sure if someone out there has better numbers, they will correct me. I'm just sort of guessing off the top of my head what those what those look like. And that would be, uh, from their point of view, just the, the most important public policy victory in human history. Mm-hmm. And we're really um, keeping it at arm's length for reasons that are basically sentimental. And I think that is indefensibly stupid. I did. Now I'm a little more. I'm a little more of a climate chicken, little than you are, I guess. And that I, I, I think that um, there's a pretty good case for a more aggressive and assertive uh, climate policy than I think what you tend to favor. But there are also ways to do this in uh, in ways that are not economically destructive and politically well, unsustainable. I, I, I mean, I'm not worried about the problem to quite the degree you are, but I think the important thing is that I favor the solution. Yes. <laughs> Even if it's not happening. And that right, that's the yeah. interesting part of all this is that this should be the sweet spot. Yeah, it should be because the one that we could on. on the one hand, you have people who do not want to diminish their quality of life and don't care about climate change. And then on the other hand, you have people who think that the world is about to end. So surely we should go for nuclear power. That's the that's the obvious compromise. Uh it it's it's zero emissions. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, there's 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 a criticism of nuclear power that I think doubles as a benefit, which is that it's very difficult with nuclear power to uh, control or, or vary the vary output. output. Yeah, but that's also a benefit of nuclear power in that you can look at a unit and say, right, that is what this is going to produce. Um. And whatever waste there is from, you know, lower usage periods is still fine because there's no emissions. So, yes, you have uh, – when I say waste, I mean uh, uh, yeah, superfluous production of energy. That's actually a fixable problem with current technology. You know, the sort of new modular designs they have for, for nuclear power plants – allow them to more economically vary the output than they were able to in the past with the um, with the older technology. So that's certainly something that's within uh, reach of solving as well. But we also, I think, should look at this from, from a realistic political point of view. 
you know, we've got the White House in a panic and the president chewing his nails off and the country in essentially, you know, pre-revolutionary situation because gasoline is $6 a gallon. Now, if you do the things that our Green New Dealer things say that they want to do in terms of phasing out fossil fuels without having some economic source to replace them with, like nuclear, um, you're talking about, you know, having the equivalent of gasoline at 20 or 30 or $50 a gallon. Um, you're talking about having just outrageously expensive energy all across the economy. And if there's one thing I think we can be confident of in this conversation is that no politician in a democratic society is going to support that. So you can dream up these policies, but the costs they have are going to be, uh, as a political matter, prohibitive. And that's assuming that you've got, you know, left of center progressive parties in power that that favor these policies to begin with. Even the parties that favor these policies are not willing to bear the price for them. And that's not just true in the United States. If you look at the Greens in Germany, they're having a very similar conversation right now. Um, and you look at some of the other uh, left-wing parties in Europe and elsewhere in the world, they're all kind of coming to the same conclusion that um, even the sort of spike in energy prices we have going on right now in a lot of countries is probably politically unsustainable. And whatever they decide that they want to do in terms of their much more grandiose and um, robust climate policy in the future can't impose economic costs that are much um, in excess of what we're seeing right now if not even equal to you. Don't you think there's something to the argument that the people who say they're so worried about this want to use this as an opportunity to do other things and recognize Yeah, that, of course, yeah, of course, yeah. And I, I don't think every person who calls themselves green is like this at all, but there is that famous quote from... Uh, oh, God, what's his name? Where he, he says that giving humanity cheap, abundant abundant clean energy would be like giving an idiot child a machine gun yeah i don't think that at all i think the opposite's the case i, I yeah. think cheap clean abundant energy would be a godsend and uh abundant solves a lot of problems or at least gives you the ability to put right. them off and not have to think about them too much anything else we want to talk about this week before we uh close it up well, the only other thing on the horizon, and it's related to this topic, is President Biden's starting to mutter as uh, Democrats and also some Republican presidents have been wont to do about taking matters into his own hands if Congress won't do what he wants. Oh, God, yes. So we're going to have a climate dictatorship. Climate emergency, and or as Sheldon Whitehouse calls it, executive beast mode you know these people um i have these jokey you know williamson's laws and Williamson's second law is that uh, when democrats are in power they act like they'll never be out of power and republicans when they're out of power act like they'll never be back in and democrats just the day before yesterday the president of the united states of america was donald trump and a man they thought was you know essentially hitler himself every example you set every precedent you establish is going to be picked up amplified built on expanded on probably by the other party the next time that they are in power and if you can declare a quote-unquote climate emergency and make a back run around the elected lawmaking body of the united states under the pretext of such an emergency well guess what 
there's going to be national security emergencies or crime emergencies or China emergencies or whatever else they're going to think up of in, uh, in the next time there's a Republican in the White House. And these fools just never seem to quite figure it out. So I haven't actually followed this all that closely in terms of the, the policies being proposed. I know that um, the phrase executive beast mode gives me the willies, as I'm sure it does you. But what is Biden actually thinking about we doing? Can't, we can't find that out. Uh, there's no, okay. there's no so, details. That, well, the only detail that I can find, and there are many stories that have been written about this, is that he is, I mean, this just makes me laugh. He's claiming behind closed doors, according to people familiar with the negotiations. So take this with a pinch of salt. But he's claiming he has the power to shut down drilling. But in the same pieces, his staff assure the writers that he wants to increase drilling because he's worried about gas prices, which is also why he went to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so it's bizarre. What a jackass. It's just absolutely bizarre. I, I think that the main effect of this, and this is where I uh, really begin to get cross, uh, would be to steal money that hasn't been appropriated and spend it without congressional approval. And as such, he would be doing precisely the same thing that Donald Trump did with his wall, which, as you will presumably remember, annoyed me so much that I spent six weeks talking about nothing else. You know, this is a classic example <laughs> of of this this uh, you know farcical habit that presidents now have, where they explain over and over again that they need Congress to act, as Trump did with the wall that they try to get Congress to act. They go into negotiations. They put political pressure on Congress to act. They tweet about Congress acting. And then when, when they lose, when Congress declines to act, as it did in the case of Trump's border wall and as it has in the case of Biden's climate agenda, they say, well, I never needed Congress anyway. This is presumptively legal for the executive branch to do. No one believes this. Why on earth would we believe this? If you, if you The great example of that, of course, was Obama and... Uh... The dreamers, you know, going out there and explicitly saying, I am not a king. I can't do this on my own. I need Congress to act. And then, oh, never mind. I guess yeah, I can. He said, I'm not a king. I'm not an emperor. I'm not a dictator. That's not how it works. We have a constitution in this country. I can't just wave my hands. I don't have a crown. Oh, actually, I can do all of those things. <laughs> I sort of should have guessed you would have had that memorized. It, it's, it was the, the, one of the most brazen uh, reversals I, I've ever seen. And, and it, Biden actually did the same thing with the eviction moratorium, if you remember. He had people saying he's looked at this every day. He's looked at it from both sides. He's looked at every corner. There's eight sides of this, and none of them are illegal. There's 16 ways of looking at this, 128 different approaches to this, and the president knows that he can't do it. And then Cory Bush cries outside of the Supreme Court, and Biden says, I've just got to do it. I mean, it, <laughs> it makes me crazy. Speaking of the Supreme Court, what did you make of these uh, squadsters pretending to be handcuffed as they were uh, escorted away by the well, Capitol Police? Perfect, they also pretend to be representatives, so they're, they're going full circle. <laughs> as uh, as someone who actually has worn handcuffs on a few occasions, I I resented the appropriation trust. I have, I have never worn handcuffs. I don't recommend it. They're very uncomfortable. I think they're designed to be that way. Um, the best part of it was that she had to, AOC had her hands behind her back. And she's walking away and she's keeping them really closely together. I mean, she did it pretty well. But then the minute that she thinks the camera's off her, she puts up a fist as if she's a Black Panther. 
And then she takes the hand back <laughs> and then she puts it back behind in the fake handcuff position. But here's the thing. Who's the fool? Because every press photograph that got blasted out on Twitter and on Facebook and on the websites of NBC, ABC and so on had a perspective from the front that made it look as if she was handcuffed. So, And some of the captions even identify them as being handcuffed. She identified as being handcuffed, I think that's the... Uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't AOC. I want to say it was Rashida Tlaib. Um, one of the uh, captions they they ran a correction later. I think on uh, on Twitter someone was pointing out. So yeah, nothing is a Stuff. greater indication of Salma envy than pretending to be handcuffed while a police officer calmly moves you out. Of, doesn't arrest you. Calmly moves you out of the way for blocking traffic and. Uh, asks you questions under a shady tree. Uh, that is not what the civil rights <laughs> activists and protesters went through. Not even close. That is my recollection. All right, Charles, well, I'm going to take some, some time off this afternoon, I guess, and go to the range and practice shooting at 120 feet, see if I'm any good at it. I don't think you'll be as good. I will as talk to, to you not next Elisha week. Dickin. Probably not. Probably not. I guess I will not talk to you next week or the week after that. Maybe I'll um, I'll get someone to fill in for you. Uh, I guess we could maybe get Kearns. You know, she's not English, but she's British. That's close enough, right? Matt Dogson, Scotswoman. Something like that. Uh, maybe we'll uh, take a survey of the uh, listenership and see who they'd like to have. <laughs>